0: This is the Rugby Centurion's podcast. Welcome to another show with me, Martin Cross, and Rugby Centurion's Chris Evans. Sam Whitelock is the fastest player ever to reach 100 test caps, achieving the feat just eight years and two months after his debut. In that time, he's won two World Cups and countless other domestic and international accolades. He epitomises the modern lock, agile, athletic, teak-tough, but adept with the ball in hand, he's also a natural leader. And when the tap on the shoulder came from Steve Hansen to lead the All Blacks, he was ready to follow in the footsteps of his Canterbury teammates Richie McCaw and Kieran Reed. It was a massive day for the whole family.
1: It's definitely a game that definitely sprung to my mind straight away. Sitting on the bus on a Tuesday, obviously Kieran was out with his back. Kieran and I being very good friends, you know, like we knew that he wasn't right the game before and. He pretty much said, right, I'm all in. Obviously, if I can get through this game and and wait and see. Couldn't really sit down on the bus trip to the airport. Couldn't really sit down. Uh, was on, obviously, painkillers and drugs just to be able to sit on the plane. And sitting on the bus, going from the hotel to the training ground, it was only maybe 10, 15-minute drive uh, max. And he's kind of turned around and give me the wink. And I'm like, what are you up to, mate? And then, obviously, Steve come down and sat down next to me in the back seat of the bus and was like, this is weird. He'd normally... Sits the front, makes everyone go go down to him, and said, "Look, we want you to be captain. It's the last game on tour. You've done really well through the Crusaders this year. You're gonna be awesome." So first thing went through my head, you know, this is awesome. And then obviously Kieran was out, and Luke had just been called into the squad, and they said to Luke as well, "Right, you're going to start." So for me, that was um, you know a massive occasion because playing with my little brother in Wales, in, in Cardiff, um, obviously a, a primo stadium. And getting to do that, and my older brother Adam and his his wife um, were over from France at the time, so they were in the stand as well. Uh, Mum and Dad were there, just my older brother and, and his wife Kayla were back in New Zealand with, with their young family. Um, obviously my wife wasn't there, because we just didn't know, so it was, it was very special. And Aaron Smith said to me the day before, he's like, you know, it's your 96 test, and you're the 69th captain. Um, how cool is that and for some reason I've always remembered it just the the numbers being back to front and we got across the line just um, I got Simbin in the last 13 minutes and had to uh, sit there and watch the boys go about their work so I think I'm probably the only captain to get Simbin on the uh, first game as captain uh, as Kieran told me straight away after because uh, he's actually I would be careful what I say here, but he's actually the most yellow card all black of all time, and I'm one behind him, so he's quite keen for me to get another one, Then we'll have a, a shared record there. So, trying to stay out of the naughty boys here at the moment, but that game there was so special, and the thing that I was nervous about the whole week was, obviously, the Haka didn't have to lead it, but it just had to be the front of the knee hall, which was the, the triangle formation, and you know, I had Sonny one side and Aaron the other, and, and being to Known Aaron for a long time, went to school with each other, same group class from 13 all the way through to uh, seventh form. So it was pretty cool to have him there and those guys d'd me up straight away and I think I didn't muck it up too much and uh, was pretty happy with the way it went and so much sweeter to to get the victory as well. But yeah, definitely a, a special occasion.
2: Did you feel the pressure a little bit more in that sense or was it overrided by just pure passion, emotion, joy?
1: Yeah, there's definitely pressure there because uh, I think the longer you're in the team uh, with the All Blacks or your understanding um, keeps growing as you understand what it means and why you're doing it. A lot of people with limited understanding think we're just trying to intimidate the opposition. And yes, there is part of that because it, it is a war dance, but it's actually we're doing it for the guys left and the right of you, in front and behind of you. And we're trying to be connected and... You know, just the understanding of the ancestors that have gone before. So you know when you start talking around that meaning yes, it is a big deal, and you definitely want to do it justice. and me being a tall, skinny white boy at the front um, does look a bit funny, so pretty happy that I got out there and just went hard really. I'm interested to
0: know, Sam, how do you choose between whether you do the traditional the Kamate hacker or the capo Pango? What's the sort of thought process that goes on there?
1: Yeah, awesome question. Um, there is no rhyme or reason. Um, sometimes it, it comes down to a leadership group will get together and kind of push something one way. But nine times out of ten, it's just the captain and whoever's leading it, the kaya, will have a quick convo. And sometimes it's, you know, there's three or four new guys playing and if we pick one or the other, it might put more pressure on them. But um, there's no steady rule. The one thing that we'll never do, though, is we'll never do a couple pong or in Wellington because that's where Kamati originates from. So whenever we're in Wellington, we always do Kamati. Um, but it's pretty much down to the captain and, and what they're feeling. Both haka's have awesome meaning behind it. Obviously, Kamati's been performed for over 100 years. Uh, we're a couple of panguo. First year was 2006, I think. You, can, you guys can Google and research that if you want. But, um, <laughs> you know, that haka was designed and, uh, created for the all blacks so both have very very special meaning
0: and talking about that sort of history i suppose the history that you've got in your family and your and especially your grandfather that the story his all black story is quite incredible i'd like you to just to elaborate on that a little bit but that connection between you and him the fact that he would have gone through the same experiences must be very special to you
1: yeah uh granddad um so nelson Played for the All Blacks in the 1953 54 tour to UK and France. He um, played Locke. He was, he was the older guy of, of the tour. Uh, nickname was Dad. It was really cool actually that this Christmas, you know, because we're all grown up kids, but Mum still loves to smother us with presents and as all parents do. But what Mum had done is she had um, found a whole lot of footage through some different connections of Grandad playing. So we've actually got now on an a hard drive of um, you know some of the games he played against the internationals and the provincial sides um, that they used to do on those big long tours, and it's really special because Grandad actually scored at Twickenham um, and they won. I think it was five five nil. Seeing that footage was was pretty awesome. He caught the ball and ran over top of the winger, and the poor little winger got knocked out. And uh, but really cool to see that old footage I must admit the first bit of footage I saw I was like you know he must have been a dirty player you know like people kicking the ball when the ball's on the ground but it's just the way at the time like I think it's real hard to compare eras now just because the rules have changed the style but re- really cool to be able to see him out there playing um, enjoying it and also just some things that haven't changed so you know the traditional test matches all blacks and black the silver fern you know, playing against the, I think then they they played a, a grand slam. So every time we go to Wales, I pretty much know that I am going to get a question by. You know, there'll be a reporter there that knows that last time Wales beat the All Blacks was in fifty three, and you know, Grandad was playing. So every every week I am there, I am just waiting for that one question. And some years I get away with it, and other other years I get the you know, you are part of it. So can you can you do it again? But hopefully not. I am hopefully I am not part of one of those sides.
0: But what he overcame to play for the All Blacks in terms of recovering from his injuries in the war, incredible.
1: Yeah, absolutely amazing. So Grandad uh, was serving World War II. Uh, they were lined up in a boat, three guys in a line, and they were, they were bombed. Shrapnel went off. Um, the person standing next to Grandad had nothing. He was clean, healthy as. Grandad obviously had Shrapnel hit his leg um, just above his, uh, below his knee, um, blew a big hole on his shin, and the person next to him was killed instantly. Uh, so Grandad's war was kind of over before it started. Uh, traveled back to New Zealand, um, went through the the normal thing around surgery and that, and uh, the sur- one of the surgeons wanted to take his leg, but someone else must have known that he was a promising rugby player, so they did everything to save it. And after months and months of um, you know hospital rehab, all those things, Grandad got to be able to walk, run, and then eventually he went back to the farm. And in those days, you know, you're a farmer before a rugby player. And what Grandad used to do was he'd get a, a bit of wood and he'd put it inside the the hole that was left in his leg, so where the shin bone was, and he'd tape it up, pull a sock over it, and he was good to go. So pretty amazing how, you know, what people did in that time to get out there and play the sport we love now. So sometimes it's really good to look back and go, right, hang on, I've got a sore finger or shoulder or whatever and go, this is uh, actually nothing compared to what people have been through.
2: It's almost uh, the, the perfect definition of resilience in, in many ways to even, you know, most normal people would even think that, that Sam, never mind go and do it and get back on the pitch as well. It's an incredible story. Do you think that sort of set the tone for the family and him being that sort of inspirational figure for you and your, I guess, your brothers that, you know, followed in his footsteps?
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's amazing. So Nelson's my mother's father, um, but Alan Elson was was mum's uncle too. So he played in the, the same tour and played at centre. Uh, he had some horrific injuries too through rugby, but um, showed that resilience and, and never gave up and went out and keep playing and things like that. So mum grew up with a her, her father and an uncle as an All Black. Uh, mum's sister so Annie Joe married Graham Higginson, who was an All Black as well, an All Black lock. So building a wee picture there, and then um, Dad played for New Zealand Colts and played, I think, around 50 games for a minute or two and got to a stage where I think he would, you know probably could have pushed on a little bit further, but um, my total brothers and I keep running on the field um, during club games and things like that, and the game keep getting stopped. So all of a sudden it was, right, these kids are just get them out of here, and Dad thought, OK, right, it's time to hang the boots up if the kids keep stopping the game because we're just running out there trying to play rugby ourselves
0: growing up was it the sort of idyllic new zealand childhood that we all imagine that farming community rugby just almost the the perfect breeding ground for a rugby life
1: yeah so obviously there is a family um there's four boys all under five years of age so mum and dad definitely need a, a medal you know summing up my childhood pretty quickly uh what i think around is okay when we got in trouble we got in trouble if it was just say me, if I have gone and done something naughty instead of all of us. So dad definitely installed, if you're gonna do something, do it together, whether that's good or bad, or maybe along the, that naughty line. But the thing I definitely remember is, you know, causing trouble and mum would just be like, all right outside, go play whatever sport, um, just to burn some energy off. Mum will give, give a thousand different answers, but one story that always comes to mind that I think about now with me having, uh, with us having some young young kids, Mum reckons she'd put the youngest, Luke, in the pram. I'd be hanging on to the pram. The oldest two would be on bikes. And they walk down the road. Uh, the farm's at the dead end road. So you know, it didn't matter what you did. The road was just a free playground. So Mum would start walking. Luke would fall asleep. I'd get pretty knackered. So I'd climb underneath, fall asleep. And there'd just be this trail of destruction of jerseys, gumboots, bikes, everything you could imagine. So Mum would pronounce walk. To the second corner, which is normally one and a half k's away, and then turn around and just pick up all the stuff as Dad's flying past in the truck um, working on the dairy farm. So we pretty much had the, this great playground, loved making forts as kids, and you know, because there was four of us, we even now, when we get together, if we need to break up into teams we still stick with our same team, so it's always George and Luke, oldest and youngest, first Adam and I, and uh, if you ask any of us, we'll all claim that you know, we've had more wins as as our team, Adam and I. Um, but no, the other two will definitely try to debate that pretty intently. The food
0: bill in your house as teenagers must have been enormous.
1: Yeah, yet again, mum and dad have a couple of little sayings. Uh, it was cheaper to send us to a boarding school rather than feed us at home. So we were all shipped off to a co-ed boarding school at, at 13. Mum and dad just reckoned it was too expensive, but... It's funny, even when we go home now, you know, you might have been out for lunch with grandparents or friends or whatever. And all of us walk walk in home, grab the fridge door, open up, have a look, see what's in there, shut the door. So mum always knows to have the the pantry chocker in the the fridge. But I'd hate to know how many dollars have been spent on us eating food.
2: How's it changed for you, Sam? And I guess, you know, you, you mentioned before young children of your own now. How have you kept that those family traditions and values and how have you sort of brought that through with, with your own children?
1: Yeah, I think that's um, something that's really hard. You know, it's easy when you're you know in a big house, you know, on a farm somewhere where for us, we've got a little bit of space here in Christchurch, but um, having grandparents in the same city definitely makes it easier. But Hannah's are in Auckland and are in Palmy and we're in Christchurch. So when we do get up there, we get to live some of those traditions that, that I definitely know. It's always nice when you get to meet your new family through your marriage and find out what their traditions are. So Christmas Day is a great example for us. Um, being on a dairy farm, we'd always get up at 4.30 and milk and try to give some of the staff time off. So for us, Christmas Day didn't really start till milking being finished. finished. Yeah, got home, have a quick shower, and Christmas would kind of start around at 9, 10 o'clock where... Hannah's family—they're not dairy farmers, so you wake up and you're into Christmas straight away. So it's totally different where we are. But I think being a rugby player, you get to experience some of those awesome traditions of what people do around the world uh, with their families. I think if you look at, you know, say the French, it's the bisou, and totally different to what we're used to. Uh, but then you know, difference between what people do in Argentina, South Africa, and. It all comes back down to family connection and food. I reckon everyone loves getting around the, the dining room table and maybe having a drink or two and connecting that way.
0: Has that stayed with you? Getting up early, uh,
1: yeah, in your All Black career, have you always found it easy? If my brothers would hear, they'd be like, "Nah, he was always the last one out of bed," which is true. But with young kids now, like you don't get an option to sleep in. Um, but I, I think farming in general, you definitely have to build some resilience. And sometimes you just got to get up at four thirty and. You know, you can hit that snooze, but it's going to go off again. So you just got to get up and go. So, yeah, have the ability to do it, but don't like getting up at 4.30 every morning.
0: I saw that you're a, an ambassador for Farm Strong, and it, I saw a message about that when the key messages were sort of look after yourself as well as you look after your animals. That whole mental health or, or, or well-being, is that something that's become increasingly important to you? Yeah.
1: Um, I think from, you know, where I've been with rugby, I've been lucky to see some amazing things, but I've seen people under immense pressure. And farming's no different. With rugby, everyone gets to watch, look at TV, you can stop, rewind, everyone has an opinion on who's playing well, who is out of form, who can be better, who should be picked. Farming's the same because people can look over the neighbour's fence and sometimes they see things they probably think are better than what they're doing. And the biggest thing that I've learned is actually talking about it, so, for me as a rugby player, if I'm playing really well, I've just got to be open and not get too far ahead, but also if I'm potentially not playing that well, have got to have people that I can turn to that I trust, um, that'll give me a, a fair picture of, of what's happening. But yeah, really love being a Farmstrong ambassador and um, hopefully making a big difference with uh, the rural community here in, in New Zealand. And the cool thing about all the programs that they have is it's based towards rural people, but... It's not stopping anyone from, from town to jump on and have a look to it.
2: You mentioned uh, you know, I guess talking about it, obviously one of those key things, I think, to express how you're feeling. Is that something that is more common now after, you know, intense games that actually people are more prepared to open up? It's more acceptable. Cause I think from like an outsider looking in, you know, if you go back, you know, years and years that it, it seemed less acceptable that, you know, somebody could open up about their feelings post post a match, post a loss, it was almost just get back on the horse and keep going. So is that, do, you, do you feel that that's, there's been a change there?
1: I, I think in, um, in general, everyone has probably got a greater understanding. I think everyone in the past, like I think of my, my short-ish career uh, of 10 years, I, I know it's a long career in rugby, but I've always had a couple of people that I could turn to. So, you know, people might say to you, oh, you know, you're doing so well, you've never had issues there, but I've probably hold my cards a little bit closer to, to my chest. So my wife's always been the one that, you know, you get home from training and this is terrible. What am I doing? You know, you go through those thoughts and your team's not performing the way it should be, especially when you, are you know, becoming an older member of the side and maybe leadership or captain, you do take on more. So sometimes the, the highs are even higher and the lows are even lower. But I think that's what makes it so enjoyable when you do nail that stuff um some people like talking to anyone about it some people just have their select few but for me I probably have three or four people that I know if I ring and say look I need a yarn for half an hour they're going to listen rather than going to heaps of different people you mentioned
0: um the sort of pressures the pressures of being an all black and we talked to Richie McCaw and Kieran Reid about this that sort of public persona versus your private persona Pretty difficult to balance those, I'd imagine. Richie talked about, you know, you, you've got to be true to both. You can't have a, a public persona that is very different to actually how you are. You, there's no pretense there. How have you managed to balance? You, you're a hundred cap All Black. You're, you've been captain of the All Blacks. You're, you're public property in so many ways.
1: Yeah, it, it's something that um, I still haven't really got my head around even now. Walking down the street, someone stops and wants to have a yarn, and you're like, what do you want to talk to me for? Um, because you know, we're just normal people. Obviously, what we do is on a TV screen. People have opinions on on everything with rugby, especially New Zealand. It's probably amplified um, because we're just so rugby mad and rugby crazy. Um, but you totally agree with what Richie um, said around. You've got to be true to yourself. Uh, there's no point in me. Um, if anything, I'm a little bit reserved, so I don't want to be out there jumping around with the you know the latest coloured boots and doing this and doing that, look, I'm probably going to go to the back of the room and just observe what's happening and and do things like that and just probably spark up a, a quiet convo around what someone's all about and um, get to know that person a bit more. So I think you've got to stay true to yourself but also express who you are. And I think, you know, I've seen it with so many different rugby people. If you go up there and start talking to them about rugby, they'll kind of give you the the face of yeah, I'm listening, but I'm not really into the combo. But if you go up to those guys and ask them about their kids or their interests, you, you can instantly see the the change of you know what information they're giving you, questions, um, engagement. And I saw it firsthand myself. Um, Kieran and I were lucky enough to be invited to meet the Foo Fighters before one of their concerts, and we we're honestly like those little fan kids uh, standing in the row waiting for you know, our two-minute allocated um, time, and the group went in front of us, and we're like, you know, you saw it straight away, you're like, they're kind of there, but they're not there, you know, hey guys, rock and roll, take a photo, and, and then it was right that the, the security would move them on, and it was really interesting, we'd been allocated a couple of minutes, and we got there, and it was exactly that, it was, oh, hey guys, you know, what's your favorite song, and And then um, Dave Groh actually turns around to the band and goes, these guys, the All Blacks, they do the haka. I looked up the translation, this is what it is. And kind of gave the band like a 20 second um, like understanding of what we did. And it was like that, it was instant. They all changed straight away. They were asking questions, they're engaged. So I think that's where the bit of gold was for me is seeing that and going, right, if someone comes up and talks to me about rugby, I've just got to fire a question back straight away and say, you know, how many kids do you have? And those people actually get more out of it and so will I. So,
2: Linking that back to sort of leadership, Sam, I guess maybe stepping out out of your comfort zone a little bit, but is that sort of personal connection that understanding others' uh, behaviours, emotions in the change room, would you put that as sort of, you know, one of the key traits for being a successful leader?
1: Yeah, I think... Uh, most of my career, like I, I had Rich as my captain, and then I had Kieran as my captain, both good friends, um, had them both uh, Canterbury and, and the Crusaders. So got to know those guys really well. But the best thing um, that I saw them do at different times was actually come down and go, right, for a younger player to come talk to them at that stage, you know, they might have played 80, 90 test matches, 100 odd super games the guy that's been there five minutes is not going to go and engage in a convo. So it's actually going, right, I've just got to go sit on a table, have lunch with five guys I don't know, learn some names, and actually find out what makes them tick. You know, some guys just becoming a professional athlete, that that is um, reaching the top. For other guys, they're obviously that's just the start of where they want to get to. But you've got to work out what makes people tick. Um, are they there for family reasons? Are they there for... The enjoyment, the challenge, um, and that's something that I really enjoy about rugby. Is you can talk to the bagman, to the CEO, to the newest player, to the most experienced player. Can you go through the whole lot and say, "This is why that person's here. This is um, the connection I have with them." So when you actually need to have a hard conversation, it's it's easy to have rather than the old "This guy, I don't know much about him," but. How do I approach that hard combo? Is it a is it a carrot or is it a, a stick? You kind of got to work out what he or she is like personality wise, and then hopefully adjust
2: your message messaging um, that way. I mean, Kieran and Richie, two incredible captains. Did you know it's much of a difference playing under one or the other? And I guess from the outsiders' perspective, what was fundamentally different, if anything?
1: Yeah, totally different. You know, go back to Richie's point uh, before around you've got to be true to yourself. Like, Richie's actually a very shy guy, so you've got to go engage convos with him and you can't expect him to come to you. Kieran and I, growing up through doing the rugby stuff, being a similar age, you know, it was probably easier uh, because I was kind of in that, half that role as well. So really different relationship with Kieran and myself versus Richie and myself. You know, Richie, when I first started, you know, I was on one test and he was on like 70. So totally different to, you know, how it is. But the, the cool thing is they got to be themselves. They didn't try to be someone else. And I, I think that's the key thing with with all of us. Uh, if you try to be someone else, everyone's pretty good at picking up on, you get to see it and go, right, now nah, this guy, there's something up It's not quite right. He's, uh, he's trying to fake it a little bit.
0: What was it like um, when you broke through into the All Blacks? I've heard some stories about, where everyone sits on the all-black bus. How did you manage? How long did it take you to work your way to the back, Sam?
1: I, I was very, very lucky. So, initially, I uh, missed selection with my uh, my flatmates at the time at university, trying to do the rugby and the uni thing at the same time. Missed selection. I was a bit gutted. I probably read into a bit of the, the media, thinking that I was better than I was. Um, so we all went off down, and we're having a feed because it was a bit cold at home and not a lot of food around, and then. This number keep ringing my phone. I was, you know, talking to my friends. I said like, I better answer this. And it turned out to be Darren Chan. He goes, hey, we want you to come in um, as injury cover for three days. So I said to the guys pretty quickly, right, I've got to go and get on a plane and pack my bag and all that stuff. So I chucked in a couple of T-shirts and shorts and boots and, you know, the normal things, thinking, right, three days. Let's just attack this. And then, um, you know, come home and settle into a Canterbury season and through a few different things, was lucky enough to stay the next week and then get named on the bench. So for me, thinking, you know, I'm just in and out here, kind of just keep my head down, don't say anything, don't, you know, look at all those scary guys down the back seat of the bus. So it was sneak on the bus, sit in the first seat you found, just head down, being a tall guy, just, if you make myself look small, I won't have to do music or any of those things. And it's amazing, because um, I played with Brad Thorne, at the Crusaders, he kind of sold up beside me. He's like, Right, you and me are rooming this week. And I was like, Okay, that's a good sign. Obviously, someone I know and, and played a few games with him um, that year. And then when I got named, then Thorny was awesome. You know, He kind of told me everything I needed to know. Didn't take the mickey too much because I'm sure if he said do this, I just would have gone and done it. Um, pretty sure I made him a cup of tea, as has been tradition uh, as with your roommate. If you're the younger one, you make a cup of tea or offer at least. Used to be the old chocolate biscuits, but nutritionists tried to stamp, stamp that out pretty quick. But yeah, some of those traditions are, are pretty awesome. Um, the bus is one that will always be around the, the longer you're around, the further you come back. And if there's too many people on the bus, the young guys will stand up, and the older guys, you know, are pretty pretty keen to let them work it out. But sometimes you got to go down and go right. If you haven't played a tennis match, you're in front of the door, and you know it's the same thing that we had, and uh, it's all done with respect in mind and yeah it's pretty pretty cool to be a part of
0: and uh, are you a music guy on the bus do you put the headphones on are you one of the older generation who just likes to have a chat and a natter or did you have a sort of did it change over your career and you had some pre-match music that was your kind of thing
1: yeah it's it's funny sitting on the bus everyone talks around how cold it is you know you go back a couple of seats and you know for me when i first started we had just such a group of senior guys so i think i went back one seat over two years where if you time it right, you can go back four or five seats in, in a season just because you know some old guys leave, get dropped, whatever it is. But for me on the bus, it, it's funny. It's changed when you first get on there. You know you're talking about right, who's on music? Please not me. All that kind of stuff. And then you kind of move a little bit further back, and um, and then by the time you get to the back seat of the bus, where I am now, um, it's Aaron Smith and Bowden Barrett and myself. You know you're talking around kids and. Um, you know, haven't seen them for a while, you know how many you got and you know, it, the conversation changes massively. Um, Hang on, Sam. But... You're
0: you're letting you're letting half backs on the back seat of the bus. This is this is new <laughs> to me.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's a bit new to me as well, but that's the problem, he's, he's been around so long and played so many games. So <laughs> that's how you do it. You just keep doing it on your number and the further you come back, then you know, you, you get to the back seat, which is awesome, but there's only one seat you can kind of go from there, and that's the driver's seat. <laughs> so there's always a bit of joking around about Eject the ejector seat and um, there's a few little traditions around that, you know, what seat not to sit in, but it's got to go off at some stage. You, you can't keep getting on the bus. Uh, you either get too old and too slow and all those things or yeah, look for a different challenge in life.
2: It's funny, we were speaking to um, Nathan Sharp uh, on the podcast and he said pre-match, you know, early in his career, Lots of rituals, routines, you know, getting pumped up for the game, as you would normally expect. But he said, as he got towards the end of his career, um, he said he would quite happily, if need be, you know, fall asleep pre match and then just wake up and know actually it's time to go and uh, and get to it. And, we, and it's interesting, some of the other centurions, Gareth Thomas, George, Gregan, have also mentioned how their routines and rituals was so important at one point in their career, but as it sort of, you know, as it evolved, it, it definitely changed. H- how's that been for you, Sam? You talk about moving up the bus, but in terms of those pre-match stuff, you know, rituals and routines been important to you?
1: Yeah, like I agree with all those guys. Um, you know, like for a while there, it was like, you know, left foot, right foot, sock first, boots, however you do it, mouth go going there. But I think now, you know, when you get a little bit older, you kind of work out, it right, is this actually important or is this just noise? um i remember i used to always have my headphones on play these songs one day my headphones stopped working you know i was on the way to the game so i'm like well am i going to play terribly now or am i going to use this as an opportunity to go and play better so i must have been sitting on the bus going oh i hope i hope i have a good game here um but you know it was awesome to happen early in my career so then when it's happened again it's like well oh, so be it um Sometimes just leave them on so no one talks to you. Sometimes, you know, you go into an awesome stadium. um, The crowd is just heaving as you're getting in. And um, a lot of the guys sometimes actually turn the music off just that you hear the crowd. Yeah, so there's heaps of different things. Um, There's one little quick story I'll tell you. Mitchell Drummond uh, played a number of games with him at the Crusaders in Canterbury. He's, you know, one of those guys, left sock goes on the left foot first and that. But now with all our Adidas socks, there's a little R and a little L for right and left. So some of the guys that type forwards are just chuck with that sock on that one, that on that. And he's sitting there looking at these guys going, they're on the wrong feet. And he's it's like breaking him, but all the other guys just can't care. So as soon as he told me that now, I'm like, every time I look at him and put on my socks and he's just like, can't look at me, he's shaking his head and. He's worried I'm going to put them on the wrong ones on purpose, and yeah, it's quite funny. He gets in there sh- straight away, looks at his socks. Oh yeah, I've got to write a myth. It's okay. Yeah, it's funny how those traditions mean so much, but the reality is they mean nothing. Can
0: we talk about the two World Cups that you've won? 2011, and 2015. 2011, you you were very not long after your debut in in 2010. You got established in the team. Did you feel the same pressure as perhaps Richie and some of the others had, who had been through some disappointing campaigns?
1: Yeah, um, I played my first Test match in 2010. Um, so for me, like I was probably there earlier than uh, what I expected, what everyone else expected. Being 21 as a as a tight forward, um, I played my first Test match at 166 kgs. we're right now I'm 121. So was my body ready? Probably not. Was I mentally ready? Probably not. But being young and enthusiastic counts for everything. Rocked up. Wasn't expected to be there, so I was like, right, let's just go out and go hard and have some fun and really leaned on some of those older guys. So got to play with some pretty cool people with Canterbury and the Crusaders. So Brad Thorne, Richie, Andy Ellis, Rito, Owe, Ben, Sonny was there in 2011. So like all these guys that have gone on and at that stage were world-leading players. Some of them still are. Obviously DC was there as well. Just trying to think who I've missed. Um, so I leant on those guys and I was like, look, what is the World Cup pressure like? You know, I didn't know. Uh, the last time we'd won was 24 years ago, I was 23. So I keep getting asked in the media, you know, the whole time you've been alive, you've never won it. I'm like, well, I can't do anything about that. Um, so like, it was, it was really cool to understand and it probably kicked in a little bit when I think Tonga arrived and we saw the fans, how passionate they were. They were meant to go from the airport to their hotel, it was meant to be a 20 minute drive, it took them about three hours, and you're going, wow, this is amazing. And then when that first game happened, um, downtown Auckland, there was just people everywhere. And for me, being a young player, normally you can go anywhere and not get asked for a, you know, a signature or shaking someone's hand. All of a sudden I was getting pumped, I'm like, hang on a minute, this is meant to be for those top top guys, not me, I'm meant to be the guy that can kind of get away with anything. So that really changed at the start of the tournament. And then when we got to the knockout stage, playing RG, things just ramped up straight away. And ran, this, this is full on. Played Aussie in the semi. And it's the most energetic, loud, harsh crowd I've ever seen in New Zealand. They were chanting things at players. The It was awesome to be a part of. Because we were, we were playing well, we'd lost them a couple of times earlier in the year. Lost the rugby champion, well, the Tri-Nations at that stage to then, and they were probably the form side leading into the, the World Cup and so being involved in that game, that was awesome, that was like, for me okay, right, we're in the final now I thought, I've got to get up again for this Uh we went out there we obviously didn't play that well we weren't allowed to play that well through just the way the, the French attacked the game, how emotional they were, but wasn't actually until I came off, so I thought I was playing pretty well. Um, De Souza scored under the sticks, and I'm like, right, okay, this is my chance. This is when I, you know, want to go again to submit myself as, you know, a great All Black. I got pulled. I, I remember running back to the kickoff, and my number went up. Ali come out about 30 minutes to go, and I was I was walked off, and I instantly went from playing where this is awesome to the feeling of, man, I, I can't do anything now. This, this I'm a spectator. I, I can't go back on unless there's blood, but I know that no one's ever going to walk off in the World Cup final for blood. They're just going to stay out there. So all of a sudden, I was just like the whole crowd. I was like the whole country, and I was like, come on, boys. And I was too nervous. I couldn't sit down on the bench. Um, ben Franks was, was on the sideline, had to warm him up about 10 times, uh, but he never got on, so it was, it was pretty cool. When that final whistle went, we all jumped the, the barrier and obviously ran out there and um, celebrated, as you should. Uh, and, you know, after afterwards, um, Andrew Cora and Tony Woodcock um, sat a few of the young boys down, We're having a quiet beer, as, as you should be, and he looked at us and goes, you guys don't know what you've just done. And we're kind of going, what do you mean? And he's like, look, you don't know what it's like to lose a World Cup. You don't know to have the pressure of expectation and not fulfilling it something that sunk in at the time and obviously 2019 you know didn't, didn't go as well as we could have got knocked out in the, the semi so that was something that definitely come back and that's probably why i definitely remembered it for so long but comparing 11 to 15 was a young kid probably had an opportunity to go to the next one because you know you're young um, get to 15 it's like right this is where we've got to go out there and, and actually play well it was a massive goal of mine to make the final, play really well, and actually be out there the whole time for when that final whistle goes to know that you're out there still playing. And was lucky enough to, to do that. You know, as the tournament evolved, we only took three specialist locks. So I was like, well, this is a good sign for for Brody, Luke, and I. And um, Luke got injured. Not a lot of people know this, but got injured just before the final. So even if Brody and myself went down, Luke couldn't have played. So drone would have had to start at lock. Um, but it was pretty awesome to be out there with Brody. The guy I played a massive number of games with and a lot of time to have him out there and him to experience what we got to experience four years earlier was, was was awesome. He obviously had an awesome tournament, played really well. But it was pretty cool to have Dan out there too. You know, the difference for him, obviously getting the medal uh, four years before, but being injured and not playing the part, the part he wanted versus him playing the final and getting player of the day is... It was pretty special so pretty cool to be a part of that as well.
2: Is that feeling any different from first time to second time you know when the final whistle goes Sam?
1: For me it was was massively different um as I said before 2011 Ben didn't get on in the final and him and I were on the sideline, so it was awesome don't get me wrong pumped we won all those things but then in 15 the final whistle went For some reason, it was him and I next to each other and we we were jumping all over each other because we both had wanted to be out there and, you know, just both 11 and 15 are totally different for so many different reasons. Being at home, first being away, back to back, the different, you know, the style of play that we had to evolve to, I I thought we hadn't played that well in the the first few games of 15. Um, Coaches were pulling things back, overtraining us on purpose and then that quarterfinal week against France. It's almost like they just let the reins go and just said, right, go, boys, go. And that's what it felt like, that French game, just the the pressure that was involved. You definitely knew as soon as that draw happened and you thought, right, we could get, you know, France at the Millennium in Wales. It was uh, very, very special to see those guys that had lost there in 07, and just the smile on their faces, just going, right, that's one we can tick off now and just relax a little bit. There's so many people around the world that uh, were involved in it or were there watching in person or watched on the TV. So pretty cool to clean a few closets out of the wardrobe as such.
0: You mentioned Brody Retallick there. You've had a, a long a relationship with him and the All Blacks side. Just um, tell us a bit about him. What's 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 he like to play with? What do he like off the
1: pitch? Brody's a top man. Um, a lovely wife Nikki and, and a couple of girls um knowing Brody, uh when he first rocked up you know a bit taller than me so it's quite cool to see another big gangly guy but he definitely knows how to play a game of rugby and always driving to to be better and that's something I definitely admire on Brody. it um, doesn't matter if it's him having a, a droppy from 50 out on captain's run day like he's he just loves the game and wants to get better and he pulls people alongside him. Um, he doesn't try to do it all himself. If he needs someone to be better, he'll go and help that person so the team gets better, which is a pretty pretty awesome way to be as, as a player. Um, obviously, someone that was named the World Player of the Year in a few years ago. But the cool understanding we have on the field is, okay, he's going to do this and I'm going to try to do that. And we probably don't need to talk about about it. We probably know how each other plays which makes it real interesting when we play against each other. Um, Brody broke my finger a few years ago and a couple of surgeries later, got caught in his jersey and I'm trying to get my finger out, but all of a sudden it come off him. So he thought I was pulling pulling his jersey off him and then snapped. and Yeah, so I was meant to be out for a few weeks, eight weeks or something. Um, so he kind of, you know, bit of banter back and forth, you know, I broke your finger, ha, ha, ha. And then uh, two weeks later, he was doing some stuff and he, his hammy tightened up so I was not meant to be playing. Just had surgery on my finger probably a week and a half, two weeks before. And I've been annoying the coaches going, look, just let me play. It's just the finger. I'll just tape it up. And they, they weren't having a bar of it. And then Brody did his Hemi and we're standing there in the huddle after the after the Thursday training and I, I've done nothing. Haven't learnt calls, moves, nothing. I've just been annoying really and Steve at the times turned around and goes, Right, Brody's out, Sam, you're starting. So yeah, Andrew Hoare just went, Right, we better go do some lineouts and went and learnt them pretty quickly. Tried to do a week's worth of work in, you know, a day and hadn't made a tackle or anything like that. And looked around and goes, Oh, you want to make some tackles? So I was like, Oh, better. And then he's just run at me and I've kind of given him a, a shoulder, no arms at the moment, probably be a red card. Did that one on each side and he goes, Yeah, you're sweet. And I was like, oh, okay, Righto. And just had to back myself went out there and played and you know it's amazing how you know that competition between between people like you know to about Brody and I played against each other so many times but love playing against each other as well. But when push comes to shove, you always help your mate out um, to go out there and succeed. And that's what Luke did for us so many times, especially through that fifteen World Cup. And I know he would have loved to play more games and had a, a greater role but um, what he did for us was was massive, and it's just what, what's expected, and uh, we've all been in that role at some stage in our career. Memories
0: of your 100th cap, which came against Australia in the Rugby Championship in 2018. Um, individual milestones are always difficult to talk about, but it must have been a very special moment for you and your family.
1: Yeah, it's, it is always hard to talk around personal stuff, personal milestones. So for me, it was, it was really nice to go back to my fifth Um, I got to fly under the radar. So I remember saying to the media in England, when DC played his 100th, because it was my first year, I went and sat down next to DC and the media, and you guys were just going nuts at him, and I was just kind of real quietly just... I was actually thinking about just slowly standing up and walking out and seeing if we could have got away with it. And Dan's turned around after he's been peppered about 100 times, same questions, goes, oh, this is Sam, he's playing his fifth year. And, you know, then I got a couple of questions in there. But uh, it was probably the easiest uh, fiftieth game. No pressure on me. Everything. Everyone was looking at Dan around what he did. So I found when I got to my hundredth, I couldn't hide behind anyone. I couldn't go right, Dan, you're up or anything like that. And um, it was amazing just the people that text, emailed, messaged myself, my parents, my family, and my wife around how happy they were for us, the dedication that had taken, and also just the the pride they'd taken and ha- having such a, a small part of my career whether it was being a man or two under 16 selector manager whatever it was it's pretty cool to get all those messages but I found I was on my phone most of the time I had to get to a stage a day or so out I had to just almost turn it off and deal with all that later because I was like i have got to go out there and play well I didn't want to go out there and underperform but pretty awesome to be able to be capped after the game uh, by Rideau and having, you know, a lot of my family there. And, you know, I actually felt like I missed out on a a few of the celebrations because they were messaging me me on a Tuesday night going, oh, we've just been at the pub, we've had, you know, this great time. And I'm like, well, I'm at training trying to get ready for the game. I don't really want to hear this. Like, we'll catch up after. Um, I'd love to come spend time with you guys, but I've just actually got to do my job here. But it was awesome after the game. Everyone came down to the the ground and um, pretty cool to see where people travelled travel from, uh, people from New Zealand um, to go to Aussie. Uh, had a couple of friends always said, right, we're going to come to your 100th. And they were kind of hoping it'd be like a big UK trip they could plan out a couple of weeks. But when it turned out I was going to play in Aussie, they're like, you know, this is, this is not good enough. So they actually turned around and travelled to Japan in 2019 because they wanted a, a bigger... Bigger travel and a bit more of an experience than going to Aussie.
0: You got there in super quick time. You're the fastest All Black to reach that milestone. What about motivation? You've reached a hunt. You're a hundred cap All Black. You've captained the All Blacks. How do you find the motivation to continue? Because it's you know, going to training that
1: routine. Do you have to look it deep down? For myself, rugby's never been a job. Um, I think if it ever it turns into that, you know. I'd hope my friends and family would say, right, it's time to to give that one up and go go do something else. But, uh, you know, I love the challenge. I love the challenge of being the underdog or the person that's expected to play well. And you just got to go out there in front. And and that's something that I enjoy Um, because sometimes it is easy to go, well, I don't really feel like doing it today because it's wet and cold or, um, you saw and beaten up because it's been a big long season, but I definitely enjoy the challenge of it. And, you know, I've always been pretty big on goal setting. Um, so, always every year sit down and take uh, a couple of weeks, you know, just think about it off and on what do I want to achieve out of that year and break it down to achievable bits of the season. So, I'll definitely have an overall goal for the season, but looking at, you know, Super Rugby used to be the June. Dream- Three test match series, then you'd go back to Super Rugby, the final series, Rugby Championship, Blues, of year tours. So it kind of always broke up into three or four games here and there, and you got to you know, do some, you know, some good goal setting on what you wanted to improve on and how you wanted to get better. And I've always found that when I've stuck to roughly that process, been pretty lucky to achieve some of those goals. And I think that was really set up at school. Uh, we had some pretty awesome coaches and, and teachers, uh, whether they were just rugby coaches or basketball coaches, that uh, definitely drove us to BP be through all the time. And the foundation that we had there definitely has allowed us to go on and be whatever we wanted to be, whether that was a doctor, a sports person, whatever, you know, which is pretty humbling when you look back at where we were to where we've all got to now.
2: I mean, you talk about that goal setting being obviously key, you know, to to follow that process. As you come into those sort of latter stages of your career now, so w- what's left to achieve? What's motivating you now?
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's a few things definitely want to achieve still in, in the game. Being lucky to, you know, start at the bottom where you rock up all the moves, are, you're told what to do and all you're told is to sit down, worry about yourself, guard and play well all the way through to being captain. Um, I've really enjoyed the different challenges that comes with it. You know, at times, probably dove too deep into it and tried to do too much as every young captain understands uh, what I'm talking about. And then obviously the working out where the balance sits and where you've got to delegate and who you need to drive what. And sometimes you actually just got to step back and um, allow things to happen. And something that I'm, I'm really enjoying, the challenge at the moment is with the Crusaders is I'm not a captain now. i developing some of the younger guys. Sometimes the hardest thing for me to do is actually walk away and let them sort things out rather than chucking my two cents in. But what I've been trying to do is actually just ask them a question. You know, have you thought about this? Have you, you know, what do you think about that? Rather than saying... Look, I don't agree with what you're saying because of X, Y, Z. You bet you've actually got to lead them down a the road to a point without, you know, letting them, you got to let, them, let people make mistakes without, uh, you know, being too controlling. So I'm definitely enjoying that challenge at the moment, but it probably can be better at some of those things. Um, with that, I reckon something that, it, you know, people said it to me all the time and I went, oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of listened, but didn't listen. Um was, you know, you got to embrace silence. You know, you ask a question or, you know, if a coach asks a question, every team's got that guy, put their hands, go straight up, straight away. They, they know the answer. Sometimes you got to go, those guys, right, just let someone else answer. And sometimes you got to sit there, it feels like three minutes, but the reality is it's about 10 seconds. And sometimes you get a bit of gold from someone that might be a little bit shy, a little bit nervous about public speaking in front of their friends and their peers, but it's actually really powerful when they do speak. I I know playing alongside Owe for over 100 test matches and, you know, over 150-odd games for the Crusaders, when he spoke, he'd run listen, but he's not going to waste the word if someone else has already said it. So, you know, it was pretty awesome when he barked, he fell into lines straight away where, you know, we've all been a part of teams where there's that guy that he's not afraid to give out advice, but he's not going to take any himself and, all of a sudden, you know, people switch off to to what they're saying because they're just speaking too much.
2: It's so good to hear because I think, you know, certainly, you know, when I was growing up, it always felt like the loudest person was the leader in the room, but actually as you were talking about Richie McCaw there actually being quite shy and quite reserved, but actually the impact they have when they do speak um, is much more powerful. One of the other things you've shared with Richie and probably, you know, uh, and congratulations as well, uh, and with some of your other uh, colleagues is that team of the decade. Um, how, how was it to be, you know, another personal achievement, something you probably never set out to do, I guess, but how, how was it to be nominated in that? How did that
1: feel? Yeah. For us as rugby players, you never put your own name forward. Um, got an email one day saying, you know, highly confidential, rah, rah, rah And I was like, what's this email? Um, but it was from a couple of people that, you know, email and, and so kind of read it and kind of reread it. And then just, it was one of those moments that was actually really nice just to know before anyone else and just sat back and just go, oh, how awesome is that? And my first question when I talked to um, a few of those guys was, who else made it? Because obviously they deal with a few players, so they had obviously sent out a few emails. But I quickly had a look in the, the um, email sent to, but it was like just me. So I'm like, okay, um, they've obviously been smart enough to send out these emails individually. But, yeah, pretty worked a few guys out pretty quickly. And, yeah, when it was named, it was very, very humbling to see your name up there alongside some amazing players and got to play with so many of them um, got to play against so many as well and they're all just top people um, really enjoyed uh, my time last year at Panasonic got to play with uh, with Poe he was another guy that was named on the on the list and really interesting you kind of play against the guy so many times and he's such a quality player that or suddenly you're training with them on your same team, and you kind of always find like, right, when he's close to the breakdown, you just got to go there early, get there, don't even get over the ball. And found in the first couple of weeks of training, even though he's on my team, you're like, right, Darius, I got to like cut him off, or you know, kind of check him off the ball. And it took a little while to kind of work out. Oh yeah, no, it's great. He's on my team now because I played so many games against them. But we uh, were joking around the first couple of games he would come on and I would go off at the same time. So we never actually got to play with each other. And then all of a sudden got to play a game with him and just really enjoyed to understand how good he actually is. Uh, playing against someone, you can go, "Oh, yeah, this guy's pretty awesome. But when you actually play with someone, you see the whole range of skills, their mindset, and pretty awesome to to do that. And there's probably one, one regret I have um, with my rugby career so far as I haven't played a Barbarians game yet. Going back to early days, playing a Barbarians game would be awesome because you get to play with some of those guys early in your career and you get to catch up with them whether you're playing club, um, super rugby, provincial rugby or internationals. You see those guys, you've got a connection and you, it just becomes more interweaved and you get to meet some pretty awesome players and people.
0: Well, I'm going to get on the phone to the barbarians and say, uh, you know, an Elizabeth White Lock or an Etoge White Lock combo could be on the cards for them. Uh, we need to, we need to get, you need to get that cap.
1: Yeah, my little brother's played for them, and um, older brother is as well. And uh, you know, they've loved it just for the fact that there's no real structure. It's, it's almost going back to playing rugby in the backyard or whatever it is. And I've been thinking about this for ten years. One, one day, hopefully. Um, there's four key qualities of the
0: Rugby Centurions. You mentioned the Rugby Centurions there are courage, respect, resilience, and selfless commitment. All great qualities. If you could pick one of those, which has been the most um, pertinent to you, which would it be?
1: You could pick all four pretty quickly, but resilience, I think, for someone to go out and play 100 games. When I say 100 games, I mean for club, province. You know, like, it's amazing because... You're always going to have setbacks. It's never going to be smooth sailing. You're going to run into selection. You might not be picked. You might be forced out of the team for whatever reason—illness. You've got to be able to bounce back. The game's going to change. Um, you've got to, you know, have that resilience to evolve, get better, and not rest on your laurels. And you know, there's all those players out there that you can look at and go, "Oh, this player." kind of had it but never really kicked on and I think that's where that resilience come, comes in and the pressures in that that come on when you're younger versus what you're older is, is totally different too I remember talking to some of the older boys when I first started you know they had a couple of kids and they're like you know I had five hours sleep last and I was up 10 times And like why but now you're in that time or we're in that time of our lives at the moment and you go okay, I understand when kids don't sleep, you don't sleep as well and um, they're up and into it. So yeah, resilience is definitely one that sticks out to me.
2: Just bringing it back to our our Future Leaders programme and and for those listeners, it's uh, a leadership programme that helps, I guess, unlock the leadership potential of those 16 to 19-year-olds, utilising some of the the knowledge and experience and skill sets of the Centurions globally. Um, Just when you reflect back, Sam... What's the best advice you've ever had?
1: I had a lot of advice. Um, one thing Dad always said to me is, listen to advice that people want to give it. It might not be the best advice at the moment, but in two weeks time, two years' time, it might be the best thing. Um, so that definitely was something that oh, yeah, I hung on to. and um, I think the way the rugby's gone, like if you just look at the lot line, the lineup, for example, when I first started, everyone defensively were in kind of you know little two pods. Then it went to a mirror system, not competing, competing. And then it's kind of evolved right back to where it was. So all that advice that you're given at the start of your career was great. And then it kind of fell away. And 10 years later, all that stuff has come back in. So it, it's quite, quite interesting how things evolve and grow and change. Um, the other best bit of advice I got, um, if you can call it advice, was actually overhearing a teacher at school. You know, being 17, 18, probably late to pass or whatever it was, uh, the teacher didn't know I was there. I overheard them saying that I'd definitely be an all black and i played play a number of games. And I'm thinking, are they talking about me? You know, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, well, you know, going to a country school, not thinking that, you know, I, I could do that was actually what I needed to start inst- installing some of that belief, thinking, well, you know, the goal at that stage was to play for provincial rugby. So I thought maybe if I'm lucky enough, I could play for Manor too. You know, if I'm really, really lucky, maybe a super rugby game. There's no way All Blacks were, you know, this thing miles, miles away that you thought would never be possible. But hearing them say that was like, okay, if, if they can believe it, why can't I? So never really talked to anyone about it or pushed the case, but it was enough to kind of just start the ball rolling and then it was just okay right how am I going to do it let's break it down into goal by goals and you know at school that's easy because you're you're there for your school year your rugby year you go away you you relax you do whatever with your mates and you come back and have a go again as soon as you leave school all of a sudden you know you can go I can train all day if I want you know university you can find more times to do things and just found myself around with like-minded people that wanted to achieve things and that kind of just allowed us to start talking around what we actually wanted once you felt comfortable and opened up and go back to Aaron Smith being at the same school you know we never thought it would happen but you know we're both backseat of the All Blacks bus now it's it's pretty humbling to know where we come from to to where we are now.
0: I think it's obvious just why Sam has achieved so much in the game and why he's held in such respect by teammates and opponents alike. And perhaps there's still more to come from the great man in that famous all-black shirt. We hope you enjoyed the programme and please do rate and review the show wherever you're listening to help as many listeners find out about it as possible and keep checking back in with us as we bring you regular chats with the legends of the game here on the Rugby Centurions podcast.